Hey, welcome to episode number 37 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. Today, you're going to hear from Maladin Jovanovic of complementarytraining.com. Maladin is a strength coach, sports scientist, and PhD candidate from Serbia who has plied his trade in numerous sports in various countries around the world. He has experience in elite level soccer in Serbia, in Sweden, and at the Aspire Academy in Qatar. He's also worked in the AFL with Port Adelaide Football Club alongside extremely top-level coaches like Darren Burgess and Ian McKeown. And now he is pursuing his PhD back in Serbia and also a sports science business of his own, which we touch on a little bit within this podcast. I'm sure you'll agree that the word genius gets thrown around quite a lot these days and it really doesn't apply 99.9% of the time, but I would have to say that Maladin is one of those few coaches out there that I would describe as a genius. Not only is he able to intellectually run rings around the vast majority of coaches out there, he's also doing it in a second language, which I know, having worked in Spanish, is extremely difficult to do. And I have to say that Mladen is one of the people that's out there really pushing at the fringes of our field, challenging knowledge and, and forcing coaches to get better. I've been a fan of his since, I think it was around 2011. And for some reason, it's taken me an incredibly long time to actually get him on the podcast, pick his brain and, and share some ideas. And... This was an excellent episode of the podcast, which I think you're really, really going to like. Off the bat, I have to apologize because normally what happens is when I invite somebody onto the podcast, we, we talk a little bit beforehand, we go over the topics that we're going to discuss in the, on the episode of the podcast, and then I start to record. And um, just because the conversation was so good with Maladin, we actually ended up talking for about 20 to 30 minutes before we even started recording. So the recording is just going to start mid-conversation uh, on the topic of agile programming. We talked about that a little bit, then we progressed to speaking about program management and individualization in team sports. We touched on GPS and various other sports science tools which coaches may be able to make good use of in their programs. We talked about statistics, probability and how coaches can go about developing their own predictive models for their programs. How we present and visualize data for other members of the coaching team and what it really means to be a successful coach, namely having some skin in the game and why he thinks the 25 year old PhD is not going to make a good coach. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches, and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion, and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month, we offer a 60-minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice and all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep and climbing the ladder. 
So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members and enter the code word trial. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just one pound. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it. There's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Okay, talk to me about tier training and um, agile programming. So, yeah, the the idea is to uh, is to use some of the stuff by Oliver Mill. So, in his unpublished manual, he doesn't have, I would say, traditional or se- sequential periodization. Uh, so, what he does is he he organizes the guys into into tiers or groups based on some of the weaknesses they have, and uh, he plans training um, uh, based on a group that athlete is in. So. You're in a in a given group uh, as long as you <clears throat> sorry as long as you don't hit certain thresholds in certain in certain tests. It might be quality of movement, it might be relative strength, it might be you know speed qualities or, or ability to do tempo. So you're gonna stay in that given group as long as you um, unable to fulfill the the I would say the the checkpoints. So the idea is not to do. You know, sequential planning. So, like, uh, are we going to do an endurance phase? We're going to do a, you know, strength phase or power, power phase because that might not fit certain individuals. So, uh, rather than doing that type of uh, periodization, especially in team sports, um, we, we, as you suggested as well. So, we might we might um, create groups or based on the clusters we have in in, in, the, in the squad, we might create groups that um, work on their weaknesses. And then we re-evaluate much more frequently and then adjust. Again, you, you, you still want to have some of the, I would say, high-level um, constraints based on a, you know annual plan or um, you know, competition calendar. But at the end, you want to um, create individualized by creating groups you can work with. Um, also, the thing to take into account is, uh, is, is the risk. So... We, we pretty much never, ever know um, how is someone going to react to a training. So if you have a pre-planned training, so training in advance for the next couple of months, uh, you might be completely missing the, the boat with some of the athletes, and you want to minimize that. So, and this reminds me of um, in investing strategies. So if you, if you hire a, a guy who is a you know, advisor um, in, in, in investing, so he might... He might suggest to use a, a, I don't know, a model that won a Nobel Prize. So I think it's, I don't know, it's some some mathematics involved. How you how should you distribute your investments in different funds based on expected value and all that stuff? Um, but if you actually see them invest themselves, all those you know experts in investment, they're gonna use a, a divided by n. So if you have um, 10 um, funds you want to invest to, they're going to distribute the money equally in each. So they are not going to use this Nobel winning uh, model uh, because it, it works really well in, um, in the world where we can actually calculate the risk. But in a world where we cannot actually calculate the risks, uh, we, might, we must use more robust uh, strategies that, are, um, as Nassim Taylor would say, are you know, anti-fragile. So they, they protect us from a downside but gives us the benefit of upside. 
So they're just going to divide equally into, into each fund. The application of that stuff in, in training uh, is to, rather than using all these fancy, you know, periodization strategies, sequential block, uh, conjugate, whatever, uh, from, a, from a risk standpoint or from an uncertainty standpoint, the best strategy is to do everything at the same time. So uh, that's, that's the best from a risk standpoint, but it's not the best from a biological standpoint, of course. Yeah. Um, so if you ask me the, the solution with, with team sports is to, you know, just do everything at the same time. And uh, I would say with a, with a minimal load, uh, all this stuff with uh, planned overreaching and, uh, you know, you know, functional overtraining, however you want to call it, with, with, the, with the goal of having a spike down the road is really hard to predict. And yeah. I think there's a paper, there's a paper actually going through it. I think it's overrated also. You, you want to get like a smooth, smooth increase in performance, um, especially in team sports. You don't want to get a, a, a dip and then, you know, super compensation, whatever you want to call it, um, or, or long-term delayed training effect. So uh, rather than try, try all these pre-planned uh, approaches, uh, the idea is to ma manage the uncertainty and, you know, how the people are going to react. And I guess the, the solution to this is to use mix, mix, uh, mix, mix uh, slash parallel periodization, so doing everything at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but then we also use these mentioned groups of athletes, so uh, or clusters or whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> and then we reevaluate uh, the stuff more frequently uh, than we used to before. So... Now the technology is advanced, so we can we can get um, embedded testing, as I like to call it. So embedded testing is a testing that's done through a training. So you don't need to do a, a special testing day or or whatever. You can collect the data while you're training and use that data to to adjust the training. So again, from a biological standpoint, this is the, not the best thing. But uh, biology, you know, you, you can optimize biological approach. Only if you know the, I would say, the calculable uh, probabilities or, you know, you, you know how guys are going to react. But unfortunately, we don't. And there's a lot of other factors such as, uh, you know, guys going on a training camp with a national team. So you, you don't see them for a while. They, they might get injured. Uh, all these life, life factors that are affecting the training. Situation with the girlfriend is always a, a big factor in training. Yeah, exactly right. So <laughs> all this needs to be taken into account and we cannot predict in advance probabilities of those events. So if you ask me, we need to start using heuristics more than, you know, really, really good elaborate plans. So that's generally the idea. And I would say that's my um, implementation all or like last two years of reading Nassim Taleb and, um, you know, Gigerenzer stuff on, on heuristics versus, you know, um, using all these uh, statistics. So, so for people who've not read that, how would you describe a heuristic? So heuristic is a it's a fast and frugal rule. So rule of a thumb uh, that might be really really simplistic. And if you ask, if you check the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, uh, it it it's pretty much in the fast area or uh, system one, right? So the fast, fast thinking. <clears throat> and according to Kahneman, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, but uh, but if, um, 
Kahneman comes from a position where you can actually calculate all these <clears throat> benefits and risk or whatever, um, but uh, Gigerenzer in, in another way. So he said that in an un uncertain world where you can actually don't see and you cannot predict things, uh, those simple rules uh, uh, might be better. So uh, might be more robust, um, and and that that's pretty much it. Uh, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much it. So, Sorry, man. <laughs> so would a would a rule of thumb be you know like if if you're going to have high days in training, separate them by forty eight to seventy two hours. If you're going to do a speed session, when it drops off ten percent, stop the session. Just things like that. Yes, something like that. Something that comes from uh, tinkering, <clears throat> as Taylor would love to say. Um, really, really simple. Um, they're not really precise, but it, you know, they're less likely to, as it's uh, the term that's being used in um, machine learning, they're, they're less likely to overfit to the noise in the data. So, um, for example, it could be uh, divide by N. So that's one of the heuristics used in investing, as I already mentioned. So in training, that might be divide all your training load in equal buckets for every quality. So rather than, you know, invest everything in strength for a given period and then invest everything in endurance for a, another given period. And as I said, that might be better from a biological standpoint, but from a risk and uncertainty, that might be, a, a, um, I would say, a fragile strategy. Because mm. you risk losing everything else. Uh, pre, uh, so some athletes might not re respond to that. Mm. And then you might you might lose some of the you know key players or whatever, but <clears throat> there's less likely to negatively respond to uh, divide by n strategy, especially if, if you do a frequent assessment. Yeah, because you you didn't pre-plan too long in advance, so you you are planning really short short periods of time, and then you are reevaluating as you go, rather than oh we're gonna spend one month doing um, you know block block phase, and then we're gonna spend one month doing a uh, transformation phase, whatever. So yeah. that might not work. The problem is uh, one idea from agile, agile stuff in 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 software is that if, if you if you're gonna fail, uh, fail early and cheaply. So yeah, uh, in this in this way, you are pretty much postponing the testing, or um, you're waiting for too long to to check check the effects. So imagine if uh, you know something bad happens. Uh, so you, you, you're going to see the effects like uh, two months in, in, you know, down the road, which is too long. Yeah. So I'm just writing down fail, early, fail, cheap. <laughs> That's one of the heuristics also. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what, what's the other stuff that you, um, I think it was one of your presentations where you talk about ideas stolen from lean manufacturing with, with is it silos? Uh, oh man, I can't remember it, <laughs> honestly. So Lean and Agile are two schools of thought when it comes to um, project management. So Lean is about minimizing waste. Yeah. Um, um, minimizing. I, I, sorry, I think it was to do with um, with single points of failure. So it was how you you shared the information about how different guys were going to be trained. Uh, it was in like different silos where you could move a player from one board to another and so on. Because I, um, so, I, I actually stole that for our guys. So we, we, we have a board in our club of all of our players. And then we have three different silos 
uh, on the board. One is full training, one is no training, and then the third is modified training. And then we, we move players' names from each column on each training day so that the coaches can see uh, who can do what. And then within the modifications, we, we make notes of, of if we're going to modify it, how we modify it. Uh, so you're referring to a Kanban board, pretty much? Yes, I... yes, that's it. Okay, so Kanban board is like a visual uh, visual information of, of the processes. And it's all about transparency. Now we have guys reading our business books and they are talking about transparency and all that stuff. But um, Lean and Kanban are pretty much already being used in, in uh, manufacturing, like Toyota and all that stuff. And they really, really made a Toyota one of the best companies and one of the best manufacturers with a, a least amount of waste and uh, the Toyota cars are pretty robust and as we can see in the ISIS using a, a you know Toyota Toyotas <laughs> in the deserts so because they are because they are you know robust yeah so yeah the idea is to visualize the the processes um, so the coach and all the staff can actually see what's happening uh, and then we can make quicker uh, decisions and and generally things being more more transparent. So the way, how are we going to organize it? It's it's up to you pretty much. But um, uh, as you said, the idea is to easily visualize the guys who are available, the guys who are you know in a rehab, and the guys who are out. Um, and then you can you know you can man- manipulate those guys um, as a like a stick notes or whatever you want to use it or like a magnet boards. Um, and, um, yeah, so another, another thing you can also use is to use these, as I like to call them, functional groups, depending on who played most of the game. So you might have guys who are starting up, uh, playing a full game, the guys who started up and, you know, eventually ended up playing around 60 minutes. I'm talking about soccer. Yeah. Um, the guys who are on the bench and may, might have less than 60, um, uh, you might have guys who actually stay at home and do, um, you know, workout on a, in a home base. So you, you have all these three three groups or four groups and juggling those uh, is a bit tricky. So they might need different training. So you cannot use one training for all three groups because, say, <clears throat> you play a, play a game on Sunday, you're going to have guys who play 60, more than 60, less than 60 minutes. We sometimes use, I think, 60 minutes as a threshold of, are you going to be in a recovery group or are you going to do something? Yeah, we use uh, 30. So yeah, in, in our situation, sports. if you play less than 30, you have to do uh, speed and power training immediately post-game. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's another tricky strategy we, we wanted to implement. Yeah. From uh, um, time efficiency, that's the best thing you can do. But uh, from motivational one, I don't know oh, how the players terrible. are going to... Yeah, they're going <laughs> to... Everybody's packing and, you know, eating sandwiches and PVO shakes and stuff. Especially and they if need you to, lost. <laughs> yeah, they need to stay on the pitch and do, you know, intervals or whatever. Yeah. So from, from a time-saving standpoint and, and realigning those three groups, that's a, you know, really good strategy. But from motivational, I don't know if you get the effort. The, again, it depends on the culture. Mm. So that, that's one thing to keep in mind. Uh, so generally the idea, <clears throat> if you split those three, you know, if you split the group into three sorry if you split your um, club into three groups uh having something that's really really transparent for everyone it's uh it's easier to to organize and uh, as you said shift shift the players from group to group depending on what happens he's gonna play or not so 
but to implement the transparency in a club, uh, it's sometimes tricky. So, for example, in, in soccer, we, um, we had a coach who didn't announce the playing squad five minutes before everyone entered the bus. So pretty much everyone, <laughs> everyone had to, to pack the, the traveling gear, be ready to go in a bus. And then they tell them, no, no, you're not playing, you're staying here. Wow. Um, and eventually the player started reading cues during the training week. So if he's out of the training drill, so he might say, fuck, I'm not playing yeah, this yeah. week and uh, become, become agitated. So I would say th- there's, there's a lot of art in this field, uh, a lot of, you know, psychology and, you know, good leadership, uh, and people, you know, people are starting to become obsessed with, with the numbers and, Man, I'm, I'm making a living out of analyzing the numbers, but um, sometimes I see the elephant in the room, and everybody's just talking about GPS numbers, and you don't see this, you know, I would say leadership issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, on the numbers, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you talk about numbers now. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many numbers out there. There's so much data. And it's got to the point where people are collecting but not using, which means you're you're wasting your time if you're not going to use it. And I, you know, I, I think it's got to the point now where if you're if you're going to use GPS properly and get your money out of that system, you almost need a full time member of staff to do just that. What what are the numbers that you should pay attention to if you don't have large resources or large numbers of staff? So to address the first. The first part of your question is that uh, too many, too many data points or too many numbers. Is that uh, sometimes you uh, you need to collect everything and then you figure out what's what's the most meaningful, you know, data stream or whatever, and then you you know simplify it. So that's also again idea behind uh, heuristics or having a fast and frugal rules. But to do that, you actually need to collect a lot of a lot of stuff and then figure out what's what's predictive, what's meaningful. And then, you know, you pretty much prune the tree or you remove, um, you add to the system by removing stuff, making, making more simple. Um, so the second question was, what would be the metrics to measure? Um, to be honest, I don't know still. So <laughs> uh, if you're talking about GPS, um, I, I would, I like I would the, say just uh, team sport data collection. You know, TRIMPS, GPS, HRV, RSI, anything. Uh, so, the research showed that subjective stuff is it's quite good. So, it sometimes might be more important than an uh, objective one. So, stuff like RP, session RP, and uh, having a frequent wellness in terms of um, soreness areas or how did you sleep and all that stuff is pretty much easy to collect and doesn't cost you a lot of money or time. Um, having a readiness stuff, uh, as you mentioned, like a reactive strength, um, could be could be useful. But the with, the problem with all these performance metrics uh, is this idea of um, a, a degeneracy. So to use a, a system system um, thinking word. So degeneracy means we can achieve the same performance using different strategies. So for example, if you're using vertical jump, as I know some of the guys are using height as a measure of readiness. Yeah. So some guys can achieve the same height um, using a different strategy. So depending on what technology you have, 
you might use different different uh, different metrics. And I guess the cheapest one is to use reactive string index. So you need a contact mat and a standardized uh, uh, height of, of the jump or, or a drop, and then use the ratio. Um, and that gives you some of the idea of the, you know, whatever, CNS readiness, or however you want to call it. Um, and when it comes to GPS, I like, I like Dave Tennis' idea of having a, a speed metrics. So that might be a high speed distance, um, total distance and all this stuff. And then might have, um, I would say a change of direction metrics that gives you this, I would say a joint load or, or front load. So for example, high speed metrics might give you an idea of how you, how you overload your uh, backside or like hamstrings. Yeah. And then having some of the some of the CO, like change of direction metrics uh, uh, for um, for a front side, so like quads and groin. And if I believe, if I remember correctly, they use um, they use a catapult and they use one metric which is quite interesting. It's called a two D player load. So two D player load is a ax, ax, sorry, it's English. So accelerometry based metric uh, that doesn't use a vertical component. So if you use acceler ac accelerometry, um, having a foot strike creates a high vertical forces. So if if you you know cut out cut the vertical forces out of the or vertical accelerations out of the equation, uh, then you get only side to side and uh, back and forth. So everything that's you know changing direction and accelerating decelerating is going to go into that metric yeah. without you know foot strikes affecting the uh, the metrics. So, for example, if you use a player load from a catapult system, uh, that's really that's highly correlated with the total distance because of the you know foot strikes. Uh, but two D, so two D is you know removing the vertical axis. Player load is uh, it's it's much more. Um, I would say it's a better proxy to change of direction and um, you know start and stop type of activities. So okay. having those two components might might be interesting so you know high speed you know how much time did you spend in a high speed zone and having this i would say a joint load you know quick short quick short and sharp movements um you know change of direction acceleration deceleration estimated with that with the metric so you pretty much have two groups of metrics if that makes sense yeah well we we have a similar kind of thing at the moment where the the, the big three that we track mostly because of resources and the, the system that we have available is, is total distance as like a overall kind of structural load. High speed running is more like a, like you said, hamstring and a little bit of uh, neural stress. And then our um, accelerations and decelerations is more, like you said, joint stress and maybe uh, quad, adductor, calf kind of stress. But then I, th I think, you know, for me, the, n the next step is trying to analyze all of the drills that we do and say well what are the characteristics of each drill and if we are deficient in one area what's something that we need to do more of or if we're approaching too much how do we how do we pull back and uh, avoid that kind of stuff yeah i think that's a that's a goal number one if you if you start using a gps devices to create a library of the drills um, and what type of metrics do they i would say overload and then you you, you know you have some of the idea uh, um, you know, on a certain drills and you can, you, you can, you know, in a given week, you can like create a puzzle 
um, a puzzle of uh, of the training load. So, for example, if if you plan hitting certain numbers in a high speed distance in a given week, and you know, as a coach, you need to plan that week in upfront. So you can you can use that library to get the best estimate what might happen on a pitch. Uh, you still want to uh, continuously monitor and see how. Um, the difference between the two. So the thing that we planned and the thing that actually happened on the pitch. So at, at Port Adelaide, we did, you know, quite similar. And then we did uh, uh, either top-up sessions or remove players from a game, depending on if, if they overshoot certain numbers, certain metrics, or they underperform on a set, certain drills. So they might stay and top up certain metrics, especially high-speed distance. Yeah. Uh, Again, having the library of the drills helps you in in getting you the you know the closest estimation uh, what might happen in in the by the end of the week or whatever you you use to to plan. So that I, I would say that's a I would say that's a goal number one if you if you're gonna buy the GPSs and sometimes you don't need to buy like forty units you can buy less uh, number of units like maybe ten and then you know get create a library of the of the of the drills and then if you see fit you know you can invest more money and get more units because each unit is quite expensive uh, depending on the budget of the club so smaller clubs might start with a smaller number of gps units uh, they are not interested in you know individual monitoring of the players so they might be interested in creating a library of the drills and you know within a budget we, we need to take constraints into consideration as well so within that budget that might be the best uh, use of gps devices if yeah. you ask me yeah yeah well it's you know like team averages positional averages and then if i suppose if you can prove the value of that stuff then you can invest in and start looking at individual athletes exactly right so and you can also um you can cluster the um the drills see if, if there's a common factor so this is similar to a factor analysis and statistics uh, you might you might want to see what you know what's the common um, latent variable what's the common factor between certain certain drills so and then you might say okay we have actually three types of drills one is really you know really hitting the high speed numbers uh, high speed distance numbers so m might be a like a big side games and then we might have the drills that are really really hitting the groin in, in for example in a change of direction numbers or whatever um, that gives you the I would say some of the insight in in what you're dealing with. Uh, it's not perfect, but you know, gives you something to work with. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just touched on uh, some statistics there. You've you've written a lot about um, maybe coaches seeing patterns in data that aren't there, talking about what is truly significant versus what is just statistically significant, and and how we as a as a field maybe need to look at how we pro, uh, process and present data what what are the what would you say are the key things that you need to do if you are going to be good at, at doing that kind of stuff generally that's a that's a that's a concept called overfitting in machine learning um, so pretty much we might be jumping jumping on the noise in in the data thinking that's actually a signal uh, there are certain strategies we can use. Unfortunately, that's not being taught in a, I would say, in a classical statistical courses on, on colleges. So you need to, you know, open a couple of books on predictive analytics. And one of the sim simplest 
um, approaches you can use is, is to have a holdout data. So, but to do that, you need to have a lot of data, and that's one of the problems. Uh, <clears throat> so if you create your model on a, you know, on a certain data, and then you evaluate the model on that same data, that model might be really, really optimistic. But as a coaches, we are interested in how that's going to predict in the future or on a, or actually not necessarily in the future, uh, but rather on a new data or, or unseen data. And one way to deal with that is to evaluate the, the model on holdout data set, so the data that's not being seen. And I just finished one, one paper actually discussing some of that topics that should be published in, hopefully, in uh, Aspetar Journal if they accept it. But, um, yeah, well, you, if you're collecting data as a, as a club uh, and you might collect data for two seasons and then try to evaluate uh, the model <clears throat> on, a, on a third season. So for two seasons you are collecting and then you, you try to, actually you are collecting for three seasons. So, again, it takes time. Um, you build the model on two seasons and evaluate the model on a, on a, on a third season. And that gives you some of the idea <clears throat> how the model is going to actually perform in, in the future. Um, speaking, speaking of some of the models we are actually using in practice at, at this stage is uh, acute to chronic um, training stress balance stuff that being shown to be associated with the injuries. Unfortunately, that those models are not being evaluated on a holdout data set. So, in this case, how that model is going to perform in my club and, you know, yeah, th things like that. So I'm actually reading a really good book on causality. It's called Why. Um, I think the Susan Kleinberg is the author. So it's quite easy read and goes into all these mistakes we are making when making causal claims, <clears throat> which is always covered in a statistical class, but sometimes we forget about it. And, you know, data needs to be collected in a certain way and we need to look at the data in a certain way to make sure we are actually hitting the causal factors. And what we are interested in as a coaches is intervention. So even if certain, you know, training model or training metrics, so like a training stress balance is associated with the injury, what the hell am I going to do with it? So how am I going to intervene? Um, I'm going to intervene immediately. I'm going to reduce the load, you know, or I, I'm going to wait for like a week and then intervene, you know, we are still left on our own pretty much in, yeah. in, in practice. So I say uh, that's why we need to have simple heuristical rules, yeah. uh, rules of thumb, and then we need to juggle a lot of art um, and use those, use those uh, models and, and, and data to help us a little bit, but we still need to use our own beliefs and I would say, uh, 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 subjective syndicators, whatever you want to call it, like the art of coaching, you know, looking at things. Because in the model, we need to we need to remember certain things go into a model, and there's always a, a, a missing variables in the model. And as a coaches, we can see those variables. So we need to take the model estimations with a grain of salt. That's you know that, that's one of the things that I that annoys me the most about a lot of conventional thought or, or research in strength and conditioning is like you know for example sprint speed is correlated with uh one rm strength in the squat well correlation is not causation um and I, I think a lot of the time our job as strength coaches is not 
correlations, but effect size. It's how big a change did you make with, with what you did? Exactly. The, the thing is, uh, what you're interested in as a coach, how is my intervention going to work? And the problem is that we never know from correlational stuff um, how the intervention is going to show up. <clears throat> and the other problem is that um, in a classical statistics, they are interested in, a, in a inferences to a population. So they're going to be interested in how the mean or the average is going to change after the intervention. Uh, but as a coaches, we are interested in, in each individual. So that's what I said, that some of, some of the approaches uh, we need to, to, to use, they need to, um, they need to use this, un they need to take into account this uncertainty. We never, we are never sure how the intervention is going to work. Um, so that needs to, that should affect our decision making in terms of what intervention we, we need to make. And that goes back to uh, the, the question on, on, you know, agile approach or, or, you know, using heuristics. But at the end of the day, we are interested in not, in not correlations. We are interested in making policies. We are interested in making interventions. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's entirely possible to massively raise the, the mean, but completely fail your star player. Exactly, exactly right. But that, you know, that will still get you fired, even if the, the p-value is extremely small. Yeah, you, you might say, oh, the, on average, we, <laughs> we increase the you know, test performance, but some of our key players got injured in the process. But I did a great job, p less than 0 0.01. <laughs> how, how do you present how do you <clears throat> simplify those concepts and present that data to coaches that have little understanding or desire to understand that kind of stuff I would say uh, visualization is the way to go so just having a telling a good story telling a good narrative with visualization the way you visualize the way you put the data on, on, on a, in a picture um the way you, I would say, the, um, divide the data in, in terms of um, groups or whatever. Um, the way, um, <clears throat> depending on the way, the, depending on the narrative you want to say to the coach, you you need to design the the graphs. And I would say graphs tells much much more than uh, the numbers. And that that's also how I learned statistics. Uh, some of the stuff like interaction. Um, I don't know, factorial, ANOVA, and all that stuff. It's really, really, you know, mind, mind. I would say, I'm trying to find the the, the English name. The, mind blowing. You cannot, yeah, mind blowing. If you if you try to think about it in a um, uh, in in numbers, but if you if you visualize the data, if you put the lines, you, you see the you know interaction. So in this case, interaction is just different slopes of the lines. The, depending on the group. So that means there's an interaction. But if you visualize that, you can, you can actually grasp the, the concepts much, much, much more easily than looking at the numbers. So uh, when I'm learning statistics and I usually tend to, to create a lot of, a lot of graphs and then play with the data, see how that affects the, you know, the visual output and then check the numbers. And that gives me some of the, I would say, like a feeling for, for a data and feeling for a statistical concept, if that makes sense. And hopefully, um, we also need to spend much more time in educating sports, sciences, sports science uh, guys in how to best visualize the data. We still use, uh, I don't know, spider charts, rather charts, pie charts, and that's pretty much shown to be, you know, bullshit. People cannot, 
if there's a lot of data points on a spider chart, uh, it's really hard to, to, to make meaning out of the spider chart, even if it looks nice. But uh, th there's actually research showing that how much data you actually get from a spider chart compared to a much more simpler chart. And it's it, the data, uh, the, the research is out there. So, but people just continue doing the same stuff they did before. And I would say, you know, as I say, screw the spider charts, use a simple diagram or just whatever. That something that tells you the narrative much, wouldn't much it be, better. Wouldn't it be misleading as well? Like I always think if you've got a spider chart for say like a, a prop in rugby union, you'd expect it to look stretched in one direction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, again, depending on what you want. Do you want to compare a guy um, you know, with his previous score, do you want to compare him yeah. to uh, other guys? Depending on the narrative you want to say with the data, you need to design the graph so it, it gives you that uh, gives you that information right. It just punches you in the face pretty much uh, right from the graph. Uh, again, you can you can always you can you can cheat with the data. You can visualize things slightly differently and avoid or hide a, a message. But uh, again comes back to a transparency we spoke before. Um, depending what you want to say to the coach, you design the graph in, in a certain way so he can actually see it immediately. You don't need to tell him, um, you know, these are the data points and, you know, what's this, what's that. So something like that. Yeah. What, what's um, what's the, the goal of your, of your PhD thesis? What do you hope to, to show? I, I mean, I still don't have one, but... Um, the, the thing I've, I've been thinking about is injury prediction or not being able to predict the injuries. Um, but again, I don't want to do a magnum opus for my PhD. That might take like 20 years. So yeah. I want to do something that's, that's actually doable. I get the paper and then I spend the rest of my life trying to you know, deal with the issues what, that I find interesting and influential in the field. So it might be VBT, velocity-based training, might be, you know, predicting injuries, depending on how easy it is to collect the data. So, as I say, I don't want to spend 10 years in doing PhD by, you know, collecting data for three seasons and then getting published for a, for a year and then writing a thesis for a year. That That's too long. So, I want something that gets the job done pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been, I've, I'm, I would like to do a PhD. I'm thinking about doing it, but I think you've you've kind of touched on it there. It's like it's really really difficult to to come away with meaningful information uh, at the high level because you're never going to get an intervention. You're never going to get them to do what you want them to do. So effectively, you're having to try and use that kind of embedded testing and collect that data without interrupting anything, and then try and get some actionable information from that. That's why I like guys such as uh, Dan Baker. So he's actually he's PhD. He's working in practice. He has the skin in the game. So some, some of his research is not really, you know, laboratory, but yeah. it's really applied. You can actually use that and apply to your team. And he has a PhD. So if he has a PhD, then maybe we as a coaches can also collect the data from the squad. And then we have this external validity. So the data that we collected, the, the inferences we made, it's applied to uh, other club settings because, you know, external validity. So uh, applications uh, of, of the study can be applied in, in, um, in bigger, um, in the same population as, as we did, as opposed to, you know, doing a, a laboratory testing or whatever. 
And it's, yeah. I would say it's easier to collect and you can actually collect it while you are working in, in practice. And that's some of the issues I, I've seen with the PhD guys. So some of them are like finishing, um, how you call it in English, um, undergraduate studies, yeah. uh, get the master's, get the PhD without stepping a foot in, in actually in, in the field. So they have this different mindset. Yeah, it's it's like a playing Diablo game. So you play Diablo game? Nah. So it's like a RPG game, role play game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you wanna you have a shield level of um, a ten out of ninety. So they are just wanna ramp up the shield level to one hundred of one hundred. Yeah. And then go to to training. Yeah. Well, so well, normally like they they go back the into academics and uh, pass them the same ideas to their students. <laughs> Exactly. So that, that's one of the issues I have with PhD. If you ask me, that, there should be a policy saying that you cannot get PhD unless you work in practice for like five years or ten years. Yeah, like the old uh, Soviet model. Yes, yeah, something like, like a master of sport, whatever. Yeah. But um, some because they are, you know, they are out of out of control. Pretty much now, everybody has a PhD without actually working in practice for a day. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm like a really practical guy or like I spent like the last 20 years in the gym, uh, but um, you, need, you need to be in, in the squad to get this feeling of a lot of factors affecting stuff, a lot of confounders, a lot of art involved. The stuff that really opposed, matters. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to, you know, p-values or whatever, just yeah, collecting yeah. data and then um, punching the papers. Who would you say have been the most influential people on you within within the field? I would say Dan Baker for sure, um, uh, Mike Boyle, um, Joe Ken with with his tier system. Uh, th- that's a I would say old book. It's not an old book. It's from I think two thousand or maybe nineties. Yeah. Uh, that combines ideas from powerlifting, bodybuilding, and weightlifting. Like a for, heuristic. <laughs> yeah, for a team sport athlete. So. That, that's pretty much my go-to book. If someone recommends me, you know, what, what's the best book for, uh, you know, strength training for team sports, I would say Joe Ken's book. And it's still, <clears throat> it's really great, great read. Um, I don't know. So a, a lot of guys inf- influenced me. So in speed work, that's definitely Charlie Francis. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Dan Baker, Charlie Francis, Mike Boyle, uh, Who, um, everyone. Who's influenced you outside of, outside of the field but then you know giving you some of your best ideas in, in terms of training because you and I have spoken a couple of times about this and you, you kind of say well up to a point in, in strength and conditioning though it is a science-based field we're we're dealing with some stuff that science can't touch upon or we're dealing with unknown situations so eventually you you have to try and draw information from other areas to try and do your job I mean there there are good business books so um because in strength conditioning, we try to reinvent the wheel and some of the other industries already faced some same issues and we can learn from other industries. So you get this cross cross effect. Um, but maybe in the last two years, the most influential guy on me, as probably already known, is uh, Nassim Taleb uh, with, with his ideas on you know uncertainty and the way we actually make decisions in an uncertain world. And... Most recently, I would say the, it's Gert Gigerenzer. There's a lot of work um, of his on heuristics. 
in medicine and one of the best books I, I highly suggest reading is um, Risk Savvy. So yeah, Risk Savvy from Gerd Gigerenzer. He goes actually into um, the good the good side with him. He, he doesn't agree with Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. Yeah, some of his stuff. So he still believes some of the fast rules are really really useful in un uncertain world where we can actually where we cannot calculate the probabilities of this event happening, that event happening, because we don't have the, the information. So what what can we do in uncertain world that gives us the, I would say, the, the most robust, you know, decision-making? Yeah. Well, you know, I guess, could you make the argument if, if you're dealing with unknown situations and you, you don't know the probabilities, what's the point in being logical? Or, you know, what's the point in being deliberate and analytical? I mean, you, you still, <clears throat> there's a, a big philosophical discussion and all that stuff. So one is Bayesian, uh, you know, approach where you actually calculate all, you collect a lot of stuff and, um, you know, calculate the probabilities. But the idea is, yeah, you, you need to have, um, you need to collect all this stuff and then you, you end up with, with the fast and simple rules. Uh, and also us as a species, I think there's a paper about that. It's, it's more like a theory of science, whatever, but it's, it's usable read. Um, we, we still need to, you know, collect a lot of stuff, try to calculate the probabilities, <clears throat> but then similar to the data question is that from all this, you know, uh, from all this forest of, of data, we, we, we select a couple of that are really, really robust and really usable in, in practice and in predicting future events. But to do that, to do that, we need to collect a lot of stuff. So, I guess we need to juggle two things, you know, just, you know, collecting data and making um, quick, intuitive decisions. So, it, again, it's art and science. Yeah. What's, um, what, what kind of new stuff are you looking into at the moment? What, what new projects are you doing? So, the thing that bothered me, so this is a little bit personal, is that the volatility of coaching industry. So, I've been moving all around and... I kind of, you know, get fed up with, you know, working for like a six months or year or two years and then coming back home, spending all my, all my savings, uh, you know, in the foreign countries and missing time with my family. And pretty much everyone out there listening are, are familiar with the situation. It, it's really competitive industry, uh, really volatile. You might lose your job in, you know, three months or six months, depending on a game outcome. Um, and then... You know, as you get old, as you get kids, you start thinking, you know, what can I do to, you know, make this less volatile and get into hopefully in a situation as Nassim Taylor would say, fuck your money. <laughs> uh, you know, just, you know, covering the, the money, you should just get, get the safety, I would say, uh, get something that gives you, you know, safety and then you can actually play around with, uh, you know, different, you know, different jobs or whatever you want to call it. Um, so... I decided to to start up the company, um, and the good the good idea the good thing with with having a skin in the game as a as a coach is that I, I realized there's a, a lot of things that are still missing in in um, in the in the field in terms of um, I would say tools and you know I started developing some of the tools for myself and then figure out I can I, I can actually sell that to other coaches because they find it uh, valuable. So 
we are now building an app that that's uh, it's going to be used for scheduling and um, serving the athletes something like a service system but functions like a calendar pretty much and it's quite easy um, as you mentioned before to juggle all these different groups of athletes schedule the training and get the feedback instant feedback from the athletes so generally the the way out of this volatile coaching situation is to to have some you know money stream money income stream uh you know w- with the company creating apps helping coaches do their job uh easier and more reliable so i'll try i'll try to you know try that type of uh entrepreneur career and you know for the next couple of months and see how that goes and it, if it fails i can always go to china or whatever and work for a, a year or two hopefully <laughs> oh yeah that i i nearly made that move once <laughs> So, yeah, um, sometimes I, I look at our grandparents and parents and they stay at the same job for like 40 years. Just you, yourself and myself and pretty much everybody listening is changing jobs for like every year or two years or whatever. And looking at those traditional jobs, like where you have a desk job for like 40 years is it's pretty strange. It's uh, first of all, you know, you appreciate it. You, you, I don't know if you want something like like that, but um, or over time we we adjusted to much more volatile situations. So the thing is, I would say finding a nice balance where you can actually have something your own that you know gives you a safety, so you know protects from a downside using a tail of. Uh, analogy and then um you know experimenting with uh, with with, with uh, career moves you know maybe going you know work in whatever usa or russia or whatever you want uh but protecting from a downside if you if for example your team doesn't play well they're always going to blame the strength conditioning coach and yep. then you might get fired <laughs> and that the cycle repeats you come back home like and you know you you lost time with the family um uh, you didn't collect much savings. So it's always like a repeating and repeating pattern. So, and eventually I want to, I want to break the patterns sort of. What's, what's the name of the company? We, we're still making a, we're still making a name, but it's going to be S. So athlete software solutions. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a good acronym S. <clears throat> but it's it's still in a alpha phase, pretty much. Okay. Well, if you um, send me the links when it's all ready, and I'll um, I'll send it out. So the the app should be up and running in mid to end of February. So we just hired a, a, a programming company to make an app for us um, because I cannot make it. You know, it's going to take me forever to learn to 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 code new language or whatever. So, but we design everything. And it's pretty much in the process of development. Um, hopefully, it's going to be up and running before March next year. So in time for next and, season. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So it's um, pretty much every everybody that we told the idea was um, pretty much impressed with uh, with you know simplicity and flexibility of of the solution. So hopefully, hopefully we're going to get a, a good a good response from the coaches and. Uh, Generally, I, I built all these tools for myself because I wanted to solve some of the issues I've been struggling with as a coach, 
and hopefully that that's going to be valuable to other coaches as well and you know just getting a quick subjective ratings and you know one less questionnaire easily from the coaches and cheaply uh, sorry from the athletes and cheaply um it's still hard to do in <clears throat> this stage people are still going around with the clipboards or paying a shitload of money for a, a big database solutions and they're just using one percent of of the of the stuff so i decided to make some something that you know solve solve out this conundrum Awesome, man. I'm looking forward to, uh, to having a look at it. So um, where can people find you online? Uh, pretty much Twitter or Facebook. So on Twitter, I'm a physical prep, uh, physical underscore prep. Or if you just type in my name um, uh, on Google, is, you know, the, the website should pop up. It's called uh, complementarytraining.com. Um, and that's pretty much it. On Facebook, there's also complementary training page where I post, um, you know, training-related stuff. Uh, also, we, we started posting uh, job vacancies. Um, for, for every month, you can find uh, some of the open vacancies that are available in our field. And that got pretty good response. You know, anyone having an open vacancy, um, you want to spread out the word, you know, just tweet me or whatever. I'll be more than happy to, to put it in a, in a, on a blog, blog post or whatever. Awesome. Thanks for this, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. Hopefully, uh, we still have uh, uh, people alive after listening <laughs> to this. <laughs> hey, well, I'm, it's, my mind's pretty uh, pretty full. I've got a lot of notes in front of me, but um, as ever, awesome stuff. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, hopefully, it's understandable. So sometimes people cannot grasp what we are trying to say without without actually having a skin in the game. That's a problem. They they need to raise their fucking standards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the thing that I, that I mentioned in the, is say um, in Aspire, I was uh, amazed how many PhDs are there, and they don't have a fucking clue what's happening in the on the pitch. So <laughs> they just collect what what can be collected. Uh, oh, let's let's measure this, let's measure that, and make a paper out of it. So. As I said, some type of a policy saying, you know, you can have you cannot have a PhD when you are like twenty six, man. That's ridiculous, <laughs> unless you are a mat mathematical wizard. So you cannot have a strength conditioning PhD when you are twenty six. That means you didn't step a foot on the pitch or in the gym. Yeah. So I would I would I would make a policy for all the colleges like no no no, but you cannot work. You cannot apply for a PhD unless you work in, in the field for like five years, at least. Well, man, I've, I've got that. I'll bear that in mind <laughs> when I apply for mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So what's your plan? Well, you know, you're going to stay in Japan. You know, what, what's the thing?